Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. If you've not been with us this fall so far, we are in the middle of a series. We're going through the Old Testament, beginning at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to work our way for the next year or so, all the way through this story that God is telling and unfolding for us. And this morning, uh, if you've been in the church for a while anyway, uh, it's probably a familiar passage to you, the story of Cain and Abel. I would remind us that these early chapters of Genesis were written by Moses to the nation of Israel on their journey to the promised land, on the plains of Moab, they were given to them. Uh, They were written to provide for them a cosmology and worldview that would anchor them in their mission to be God's redeemed people for the whole world. And and the same is really true for us, that these stories are written to us uh, to give us the worldview we need and the sense of who we are and why we're here and what God's doing in the world and with us so that we can live our lives faithfully as his people. So, th- so we have to know the who and the why of creation and of these stories and of human history in order to st- understand the what of our lives. And that's what these chapters are giving us. They frame our lives within a certain reality. And so let's just, just again, review very quickly. What reality is we've, uh, that we've learned so far? Uh, we have to learn. We have, we have to understand, and we have to know uh, a couple of things. I think from these, you know, first few weeks that we've looked at these things. First, we we've seen uh, that the world we live in was designed by a creator. There's a creator. The world's not an accident. 
Uh, the world is not all there is. So atheism or materialism, either side of that whole panorama of views, neither are sufficient. If there is a creator, then there's a design woven into the fabric of his creation, and we have to pay attention to that design or we'll break our lives against it. So in some sense, secularism doesn't work, right? But we've also learned uh, that the world has fallen, that it's broken, that sin has ruined all that God has created, and so life doesn't work right. Our hearts don't work right. Our relationships don't work right. Human society doesn't work right, and so on. And these are the kinds of things that we have to understand that the Hebrews had to understand, which is why Moses is writing to them, so that we can be able to live effectively, to be wise, which we talked about in our Proverbs series, means to be in touch with reality. See, if you try to live your life as if there is no creator and therefore no design in creation, you're out of touch with reality. And that really is the error of secularism. Secularism says we can define morality however we want to. We can define marriage however we want to. We can just kind of make it up as we go along because after all, there really is nothing else here but us anyway. So let's just kind of get together, bang our heads together and figure out, you know, what we think is right and wrong and all these sorts of things. That's out of touch with reality, see. But you're also out of touch with reality if you don't realize and understand and live as if the world we live in has fallen and that things are no longer the way they're supposed to be. And that's really the error of a lot of Protestant evangelical theology that would say to you, believe in Jesus and you'll have lots of money and you'll never get cancer. And if you do get cancer, just claim God's promises and you'll be cured. And it doesn't work. Because there are tiny microbes running around out there that we don't even understand and can't define that are attacking human bodies because the world we live in just doesn't work the way it's supposed to anymore. And sometimes there are no answers to those questions. Now, as Moses continues to tell the story here at the beginning of the, here at the, beginning, the story of the human race and its beginning, his purpose, and I'm thinking specifically of chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Genesis, is to show us as he's introduced to us the creation, the fall, and now what he's going to do is he's going to begin to, to show us how destructive and pervasive sin really is as it kind of progresses throughout the next few chapters of this book. What life east of Eden, verse 16 there, exiled from the garden, away from God's presence, all these things we've been talking about, what life east of Eden is really like. And what began as a subtle challenge to God's authority, a reaching out for a piece of fruit that God had forbidden the first man and the first woman to eat, quickly escalates into envy and hatred and even murder and the murder of one brother against another brother. Derek Kidner, who has written a commentary on Genesis, says it this way. He says, and I found this, I found this really helpful. He said in chapter 3, uh, Eve had to be talked into sin by the serpent, but here, just one chapter later, in chapter 4, it's gotten so bad that even God can't talk Cain out of his sin. That quick. Things have gotten a whole lot worse. And they will continue to get worse and worse until God intervenes. And so the purpose of this story and the next few chapters of this book is to illustrate sin's pervasiveness and progress. And imagine this with me for a minute. If this, from chapter 3 to chapter 4, if this, if this is what happens within a generation, what about 6,000 years of human history? Cornelius Plantinga, who wrote a book uh, on, on the whole creation, fall, redemption 
paradigm, he says, he says this way. He says, each generation enters a world that has long ago lost its Eden, a world that is now half ruined by the billions of bad choices and millions of old habits congealed into thousands of cultures across all ages. And so how do you live in a world that's lost its Eden? That's what this passage is about. Okay, how do you live in a world faithfully? How do you live there in a world that has lost its Eden? And I want you to see three things with me this morning as we kind of work through this passage, okay? We have to, these three things are really, I think, what this passage is trying to teach us. We have to understand first what sin is and how it works on us and in us, okay? That's the first thing. We have to understand what sin is and what this passage teaches us about it. Secondly, we have to understand what this passage shows us about the sin that's underneath every sin. And then thirdly, we need to just see and and take heart in the, the solution God has to sin and how we can be free, free from it. So let's let's look. Understand what sin is and how it works, and that's the predator. We're going to talk about sin as a predator. Secondly, to understand the sin underneath the sin, and we're going to see that as we talk about what the sacrifices these two boys make to the Lord. And then ultimately, we're going to see God's solution, and that's just the blood. Okay, so those are your three points in your outline. Let's walk through this together if we can, okay? Let's, let's look uh, here at the very beginning. First, we need to understand what sin is and how it works on us and in us. Uh, verse 7, this is the first time in the Bible we come across the word sin. So here's the first occurrence of sin in the scriptures. The author uses a metaphor to describe how sin works on us and in us. He says, look there, verses 7 and 8. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, the Lord says to Cain, but you must rule over it. And so what the Lord is teaching Cain here is that sin is like a predator crouching down in the grass trying to sneak up on its prey. And you know what I'm talking about, right? If you've ever watched Discovery Channel or Animal Planet, you know, watch, you watch a show about lions on Animal Planet and the lion is trying to catch the impala. And what does the lion do? He crouches down in the tall grass, right? And stays hidden because he, knows, he only has a burst of speed and so he has to sneak up on the impala and overtake it. And what the Lord is saying is that is a picture of how sin goes to work on you in your life. Sin is crouching at your door, God says to Cain. In other words, sin hides itself. Sin, sin is subtle. I mean, I mean, this is before the murder that happens later in the story, right? There's nothing obviously wrong with Cain here. And yet, to verse 7, we don't really see any of the dynamics that we're going to see after verse 7, and yet the Lord comes to him, and he says, be careful, Cain. Sin's crouching at your door. It's getting ready to pounce on you. And the idea that's being kind of presented to us here is that sin works through deception. It sneaks up on you. It starts with the little things that seem like no big deal, and then all of a sudden you're trapped in its claws and it's crushing the life out of you. It's the nature of sin to hide itself from you. There's something wrong in Cain's heart here at the beginning of the story, but it's hidden. It's not there on the surface. We don't know what it is yet. Even Cain doesn't know what it is yet. It's so subtle he doesn't see it. So God comes to him and he warns him and he confronts Cain And it's an incredible act of mercy. He says, why are you angry, verse 6, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, well, then sin is crouching. And so the context of the passage here is worship. Cain and Abel are bringing sacrifices to the Lord, right? They've come to worship the Lord God. But Cain's heart's not right. Outwardly, he's doing all the right things. He's doing what he's supposed to do, but inwardly, something's off. And that's the problem. You can go to church... You can be very good, very moral, outwardly you can do all the right things, but underneath, 
See, in the hidden parts of your life, in the hidden recesses of your heart, there might be pride and self-righteousness or selfishness or envy or jealousy, and you're not even aware of it. It's, so, it's, it's there, but it's so subtle. It's so subterranean that you're not even consciously aware that it's true of you. And for most of us, that means that we're walking along. Most of us in the room, we're going about our lives. Everything's fine and dandy, and we don't realize that we're being hunted. That lurking in the shadows is a predator that's just waiting for the right moment to pounce. Scary, isn't it? It's supposed to be. (laughs) So the application for us then is just this. In Hebrews 3, the Hebrews writer says this to the people he's writing to. He says, exhort one another every day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, there it is again, right? Blindness to sin. The deceitfulness. Blindness to sin is part of the sinful condition. Sin hides hides itself from you. It's subtle. It crouches down in the tall grass and just waits for the right moment to, to pounce. And then it's too late. And that means that right now, see, right now as we sit in this room and we talk about these things together, for all of us, the things that are killing us are the stuff we're not even aware of. The sins that are going to take you out are the ones you don't even know about. And so if I was to say, and I've started to do this with people, if I was to ask you to list the three to five areas of sin and struggle in your life, the big deal sins wouldn't even be on the list because they're the ones you don't know about yet. See, they're, because they don't feel like a big deal, but they are. And you might not be aware of them, but everybody else in your life is. So the first thing we learn about sin is that it hides itself from you. That's part of its strategy. It stays subterranean. It stays crouching in the shadows, and then it pounces. And so in Hebrews, then, the solution is a community of people around you that you trust that are wise enough and strong enough and gracious enough to help you see your sin and deal with it. Exhort one another daily, the Hebrews writer says, so that you may not be hardened. So sin is a predator. It's crouching down. It's keeping out of sight. It's waiting for just the right moment to overtake us. God says to Cain, its desire is for you. You see that in verse 7? But you must rule over it. Now, this is almost identical language to what God says to the woman in Genesis three sixteen that her desire would be for her husband, but he would rule over her. And that word desire means that in her sin, God is saying to the woman, in her sin, the woman would want to dominate her husband and control him, but that ultimately she would fail to gain that control over him, and instead he would rule over her. Now, that, we just kind of went right by that last week, right? But that's there. And that is part of the dynamic if we ever come back to these passages someday that we have to deal with in more, in more detail. But, but what, what, what God is warning is that there would be conflict because they would be set against one another. And I'm sure none of you experienced this in your marriage, right? But that the woman would want to dominate and control the man, but that at the end of the day she would fail and he would, in fact, uh, gain control over her. There would be conflict. Husbands and wives set against one another in a struggle to gain power over one another. And don't give me that innocent look. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. So here in Genesis 4, everybody's like, do you know what he's talking about? I don't know what he's talking about, right? I know how this works. It's the same language, okay? Here in chapter 4, sin's desire is for us. Sin is bloodthirsty for our demise, right? Do you know that? Do you know that? 
Sin is being personified and described as a spiritual power that's on the hunt, and you're the prey, and it is bloodthirsty for your destruction. Do you know that? Fathers, do you live as if that's true for your children, for your wives? Sin wants to gain control over you. But what God says is that instead you have to exert energy to rule over it. You have to fight. See, the, the, I mean, we understand what's happening here, right? God is saying you can't be passive. You can't dismiss the sin in your life when it's still a small thing. You can't just focus on the big stuff, right? The, the scripture over and over again, it, it really kind of narrows our, our uh, commitment to obedience and holiness down to the small little moment-by-moment decisions we make. Battle against sin is a moment-by-moment battle. Every little decision creates momentum either towards being dominated by sin or gaining control over it. And for some reason, and let me just say, we, we celebrate the love and the grace of God. We talk about the gospel all the time around here, but it's interesting that in our circles where we start to talk about God not loving us because we do good things, but God loving us because he loves us and he's put his love on us in Jesus and we can celebrate and rejoice in that, somehow it, that some for some weird reason, it erodes the sense of I'm going to go to war against sin. It shouldn't be the case. It should not be the case. Sin wants to gain control over you, but instead you have to rule and exercise energy and discipline to rule over it. Every little decision creates momentum, either toward being dominated by sin or gaining control over it. You have to be diligent. You have to go to war. John Owen who's a Puritan pastor and theologian, famously said, either be killing, excuse me, he said, either be continually killing sin or sin will be killing you. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two options. So, then what do we do? Okay, what, uh, I am in trouble because my notes are all messed up in here. So here we go, y'all ready? I just looked down at the page, and I'm like, that's not supposed to be there, and I'm out of order. So what am I going to do here? All right, sin. I found it. Here we go. We're good. Sin is a predator, okay? It's on the prowl. So if you wondered, he looks panicked. I felt panicked for just a minute. Whew, is it hot in here, or is it just me? And that was, that's, you're not supposed to be laughing at this point in the sermon either, so that's an epic fail, as my son would say. Gosh, man. Let me rewind. John Owen, either be continually killing sin or sin uh, will be killing you. Sin is a predator. Sin is on the prowl. And you have to know that in order to live in a world that's lost its eden. But the second thing, okay, you have to understand, not only do you have to understand sin and how it works, but you need to understand, we need to understand the sin that's underneath all the sins of your life. You have to understand the motivational center and core of all sin. That's the only way to kill sin, Right? If you just go out into the garden and pluck weeds from the ground without going all the way to the root, what's going to happen? It grows back. So the only way to be free of sin is to understand where its power comes from and to take the fight down to the root. And that pa- this passage helps us with that. So let's look at the sacrifice. Look at verses four, 4 and 5. In the course of time, we're told, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first, uh, first of the ground. And Abel, or the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flocks and the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry, and his face fell, we're told. So what you see here is both the boys bring a sacrifice to God, but God accepts Abel's offering 
not Cain's. Why? Why? Right? That's, that's the obvious, I mean, that's the obvious question. Why? What's wrong with Cain's offering? In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 says that, that it was because Cain's offering was made in faith, and Cain, and, and, excuse me, Abel's offering was made in faith, Cain's offering was not. But again, what does that mean? What's going on here? Cain's had no faith. Abel's was made in faith. Does that mean Cain believed in God? It can't mean that Abel believed in God and Cain didn't. Cain's talking to God here, right? So there's some subtlety we have to figure out. And let me say, there's no full satisfactory explanation. Don't you love it when people who are supposed to know what they're talking about say that? There's much we're left to wonder about. But having said that, let me offer my best explanation for what Hebrews means by Abel's offering being offered in faith, and that's why God accepted it. It's, it's something like this, I think. That Cain, if you notice, is offering to the Lord the fruit of his labor. Which means that for Cain, the way to get to God is to work hard, to follow the rules, to be a good boy, to obey, and then offer your obedience to the Lord as a token of your devotion to him. Okay. Abel's sacrifice is much different, of a much different kind. He brings a slaughtered lamb, which harkens back to the sacrifice that God, we saw this two weeks ago, right? The sacrifice that God himself made in the garden to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve with the skin of an animal. So for Abel, the only way to get to God was through a propitiation. Blood had to be shed. Either Abel's blood or the blood of a sacrifice. And see, these are two fundamentally different approaches to God. Right, right here at the very beginning of the Bible, these two approach, approaches get traced out all throughout the rest of the story, but they're right here. The first approach, Cain's approach, says the solution to sin comes from you. Right? You have to turn your life around and become a good person, not like the rest of those bad people out there. The other approach, Abel's approach, says the solution to sin is to come from God. It's the promise of Genesis three fifteen and 16, that God would send a savior that would crush the serpent and be crushed in the process. There are nuances, obviously, in the text that hint at this. Cain is the firstborn. Abel's the younger brother. Now, that's not such a big deal for us, but it was for them and for the people Moses was writing to. The firstborn, all throughout, you know, this kind of the time in history that we're talking about, the firstborn was expected to be responsible and obedient and a hard worker, and the younger siblings could be screw-ups, and it didn't really matter. And if you don't understand that, ask the firstborn in your life. They'll tell you about it, right? I, I say that I'm, I'm a firstborn. In fact, I'm the, fir- I'm the firstborn of two firstborns, which is a recipe for neuroses and all kinds of terrible, terrible emotional problems. If you're, if you're a firstborn and you're married to your firstborn and you have a firstborn, pray for him and show, or her and show them grace. Right? So Cain, Cain's the firstborn, Abel's, not, Abel's the younger. Cain's name means, literally, to possess, to uh, acquire, or to achieve. Abel means breath. So Cain means successful, fruitful, productive. Abel means a nobody. I mean, Cain is the winner in the family. He's the hard worker. He's the apple of his parents' eye. If you don't believe me, look at Eve's excitement. I mean, you want to talk about causing havoc with your children. When, when Cain is born, look what Eve does. Eve starts to celebrate and sing songs to the Lord for what, what you know, he's done for her. And then in verse 2, and then Abel's born, and we go right past that. I mean, no celebration, nothing. Right? Cain, oh, all hail Cain, Abel. The Lord gave them Abel. Okay, next. I mean, moving on. That's really how it reads, right? And so, and so 
this is, this is a real reality in these two brothers and the way they live with one another. And yet God rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's offering, and we're left to ask why. And the answer, I think, is that God accept, or rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's because Cain's offering pointed to himself and his work, whereas Abel's offering pointed to God and the hope that he would work as he had promised. For Cain, the offering was a means of salvation. For Abel, it was a response to the promise of God's salvation. Cain's offering was, was tokenism to keep God appeased. Abel's offering was a response to the grace of God. And that's what Hebrews means when it says that Abel offered a sacrifice in faith. That unlike Cain, Abel discerned the way the gospel works. Isn't that fascinating to think about? Right here at the beginning, Abel discerned the way the gospel works. Abel, Abel see... Cain thought he had to work hard to keep God happy. Abel knew his only shot at God's love and acceptance was that God was a God of mercy and grace. That is to say, the thing that was wrong in the interior of Cain's life was he was not believing the gospel. He was not building his life on the love and the grace of God towards him. Just like, and you're going you're gonna to say, I can't believe it took him this long to get there, some of you. Just like the older brother in Jesus' parable, the prodigal son. Cain thought of himself as the good boy, thought of his brother as the bad boy. And yet in Jesus' parable, it's the bad boy, the moral failure, the irresponsible one that gets the party thrown in his honor. And it's the good boy, the responsible, hardworking, dutiful one who's left out. And it's the same reversal that happens here. Look at verse 6. What's Cain's response? He gets angry. He gets angry when God accepts his brother's sacrifice and rejects his. Now think about that for a minute. He's not afraid. He's not confused. He's not sad. He's angry. And his anger reveals what's really going on in his heart. He's angry because he thinks God's got it wrong. I mean, why was the older brother in the prodigal son story so angry? He was angry because his brother did not get what he deserved, which was to be beaten and chased off, which meant he did not get what he deserved, which was to be the one that was being celebrated. He was angry because he had built his life on the idea that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And then his father's grace towards his younger brother took a sledgehammer to his whole way of doing life. His heart wasn't oriented towards grace. And Cain is angry because his heart isn't oriented towards God's grace either. He's not resting his life on the promise of Genesis 3 15 and 16, that God would send a seed that would crush the serpent's head. He still wants to be the hero of the story. And it's interesting. Just think about this for a minute. The end of the prodigal son's story, the story ends with the elder brother still outside, and it's the younger brother who's repented of his sins and come in and and is enjoying the fellowship of his father and and the party. But the older brother refuses to repent in his self-righteousness and come in. And here, this story ends with Cain going further east, further away from Eden, being cast further out from God's presence. This is a big deal. Cain thinks good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, and he's one of the good people. He doesn't believe in salvation by grace. And that's the root of his envy. It's the root of his hatred of his brother and and ultimately the murder. It's the root of every sin. Underneath every sin is a failure to believe the gospel. And so let me just work this out for just a minute with you. It's the root of pride. Right? Where does pride come from? Pride says there are good people and bad people and I'm one of the good people and you're one of the bad people. (laughs) Right? 
there's right and there's wrong and I'm right and you're obviously wrong. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says none are righteous, no, not one. None seek after God. So pride hears that and says, oh, poppycock, right? What is that? That's ridiculous. But if these stories at the beginning of Genesis teach us anything, they teach us that we can't point the finger and say those people are the problem, right? No, this is all of us, you, me, them, all of us. And, if, and see, if you're proud, if you feel superior to people and go around looking down your noses at them, you've forgotten the simple truth that we are all sinners, that we're all wrong, and our only shot is that God is a God of mercy and grace. It's the root of anger. If you're angry because you're not being treated fairly or because somebody else is getting the life that you think you deserve, you've forgotten something really important, and that is that all of life is a gift. If you say, I deserve a break from the kids tonight, or I deserve a new wardrobe, or I deserve a new house, be careful. Be careful. It's the root of envy and competition. Before Cain murders Abel, he envies him, right? John, 1 John 1.3 asks, why did Cain murder Abel? And the answer is because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Envy begrudges other people their successes. It celebrates when somebody else fails. God lifts up Abel's face and Cain's face falls. Why? Why? I mean, think, why couldn't Cain just come to Abel and say, good job, little brother? Why is there sibling rivalry? Why is there rivalry and competition among people who are supposed to be friends and be for one another? But when somebody else is complimented, my whole life falls apart and so on. I mean, Cain's life is falling apart because God has accepted his brother's sacrifice. And my life falls apart too when somebody else succeeds and I fail because I still think that I have to win, that I have to be the best, and I need everybody else to lose because my heart's not oriented towards grace. But it's the root of hatred and ultimately murder too, right? I mean, don't read this passage and think because you've never murdered anybody that you're off the hook. Listen to 1 John 3 again. We should love one another, John says. We should not be like Cain, for everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And probably the most chilling part of this whole passage to me is when the Lord comes to Cain after the murder down in verse 9 and says to him, where is Abel your brother? And he is so easily, he so dismissively says to the Lord, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, am I responsible for him? Is my life supposed to revolve around keeping track of him? I mean, he's a big boy. He can take care of himself. Am I supposed to just keep watch over him all the time? And what's the answer? Yes. I mean, the answer is yes. And most of us, most times, we don't say, I hate that person. We say something like, I don't hate them. I just don't want to have anything to do with them. And the Bible says, then you hate them. Because indifference is worse than hate. And one of the features of the text is that the word brother is used 14 times in 16 verses, right? So what's shocking about what happens here is these two people who should are in familial relationship with one another, who should be for one another because their brothers have so easily turned their back on one another to the point where one of them kills the other. And we so often grow cold and indifferent and unconcerned and distant from one another who we are called brothers and sisters to one another in our common union in Jesus Christ. And behind all of the envy and competition and anger and pride, and behind all of the prevailing sins of our lives is this prevailing belief in salvation by works. No grace. And when the community isn't oriented to God's grace, that's what begins to happen. So sin is crouching, see? 
and its desire is for you. Either be killing it or it'll be killing you. But in order to do that, you have to go all the way to the root. You have to start asking hard questions of your heart about why it is that you can be so filled with envy or hatred or, or indifference towards people that are supposed to be your brothers and your sisters or your spouse or you know your brothers and sisters in Christ or whoever it might be. You have to find the places where your heart truly isn't oriented to God's grace and love towards you and you have to take the battle there. And that's the last thing the passage does is it helps us in our fight to believe the gospel to be true. So in the few minutes that I have left, let me finish by looking at just that. Let's look at the blood, can we? Verse 10. After Cain murders his brother, the Lord comes to him and says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now that's a strange image, isn't it? And yet in the Hebrews passage we read in our call to worship, the Hebrews writer draws a parallel between the blood of Abel crying to God for justice and the blood of Jesus who cries out for mercy and salvation. Look at, if you want to turn back to that passage again. Um, The writer of Hebrews says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the point the Hebrews writer is making is that there is another Abel. And his blood was shed too. But unlike Abel's blood, which cries out to God for justice, his blood cries out for something different. Now, it's a great example of what we're trying to do in this series and what the New Testament writers do in interpreting the Old Testament in light of Jesus, that every story truly does whisper his name. And and the writer of Hebrews sees something significant about the story in light of what Jesus has come to do for us. Every story whispers his name, and this one does too. So what does God mean when he says to Cain, Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. It's a metaphor. And it means that all blood that is unjustly shed cries out to God for vengeance. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this topic, which you can imagine is much better than the one I am currently preaching. And this is how he put it. He said that the cry of Abel's blood went directly to the judgment seat of God with a heaven-piercing cry laying an accusation against Cain that was meant to rouse God to action by saying... Judge of all the earth, will you let the weak be trod down by the strong? Will you allow the innocent to be struck by the fierce hand of the wicked? Will you pass by this? Then how can you be just? And just like Abel's blood, Jesus' blood cries out too, but it cries out a better word according to Hebrews. And in 1 John 1, 9, John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what to forgive us? Just. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then he goes on, if we, have, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, if your faith and trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, what John says is he's your propitiation. And that means that he died to satisfy the demands of God's justice against your sins. That we all stand guilty before God and condemned like Cain. Maybe not guilty of murder but guilty of sinfully being angry or envy or pride or whatever it might be. And our sins cry out to God and and rouse God because he's a God of justice. He has no choice but to listen and to be roused to vengeance. But God's solution is this. That on the cross, Jesus' blood was shed. And his blood is the payment for our sins to satisfy his justice. So whereas before it would have been unjust for him to hear the cry of the blood that we're guilty of, and to not be roused. Now, 
because he came against Jesus, because he disregarded Jesus, as Jonathan said, because he turned his face away from his only son on the cross and shed his blood, God would now be unjust to come against us. He can't. His justice demands not vengeance, but forgiveness. And so if you come to God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner, if God fails to have mercy on you, it would mean that he would be asking for two payments for your sin. Jesus' payment and yours. And therefore, Jesus' blood cries out for justice too. It says to God, it would be unjust for you to ever give up on the ones who believe in me. It would be utterly unjust for you to fail to acquit them. Jesus is standing before God, holding out his pierced hands and saying, I'm not asking for mercy for them, I'm asking for justice. Look at the wounds. Look at the blood. Father, will you not... Regard the sacrifice that I have made. I have shed my blood and therefore they must be saved. And God says, yes indeed, son. Now Charles Spurgeon in the sermon I mentioned before, at the very end he makes the point that the blood of Jesus not only speaks a better word on our behalf to God, but he goes on to say it also speaks to our hearts to comfort us, to assure us of God's love, to quiet any doubts we might have of his love and acceptance for us. And that's the key, see? That's the key. There it is, to living free of sin's power. If the motivational core of all sin is what we're talking about, if it's, I'm unsure about God's love for me, I'm not resting in the gospel, so I'm trying to prove myself against everybody else, and that what, that's what leads to pride and anger and envy and competition and with others, which leads to gossip and saying unkind things and all of these things, and even hatred and anger and all the way to murder, all of that. If the motivational core is I'm not sure God loves me, I'm not resting in the gospel, right, trying to prove myself, then to fight against sin is to fight the battle at that motivational center. You have to, you have to go all the way to the root. You need to be healed there. And the only way, see, the only way your heart can be healed at its root is if you hear the blood of Jesus in your heart by faith crying out, in my death you have life. Because God came against me, he'll never come against you. Because he disregarded me, he now regards you. I love you. It is finished. See, when that happens, when your heart becomes attuned to the cry of Jesus' blood, you won't be proud. You can't be proud. You won't boast. I mean, what's there to boast about? See, it begins to dismantle. It absolutely dismantles all of the all of the machinery of sin in our lives. You won't look at your friends as competitors and be constantly trying to get ahead and knock others down. There won't be any need for that. Because now your heart's resting where it should have been resting all along. Sin is a predator. Kill it, or it'll kill you. But understand where you have to go to battle. It's not not in the externals of your life. It's at the very core of of the motivational center of why we do the things we do and our failure. So trace out the areas in your life where you're not resting in the gospel and then go uh, and, and plead with God to open your ears to hear the cry of the blood, to come into the center of your life, the words of the Father, his love and his affirmation of you is the only thing that can heal our hearts. Uh, but when it does, it'll completely dismantle the machinery of sin in our life. So let's pray and ask him to do just that, can we? Father, come and do just that. We really do pray. I mean, we're, we're problem-solving towards obedience. Let's not, let, help us to not be mistaken about that. Uh, I, don't, I don't want the flavor of my life or the life of my friends to be, oh, I'm such a big sinner, but thank you that Jesus loves sinners. Amen, the end. 
uh, but that we would take seriously what John says in John in First John chapter two that the goal would be that we not sin. I write you these things so that you may not sin, he says. But if you do, you have an advocate. So, Father, please come. And, and we, we read about the destruction and the devastation of sin here in Genesis 3 and 4 and, and 6,000 years of history. And we pray that you would come into our lives and help us to, re, to reverse the momentum. Come and form and shape in us a heart of obedience out of gratitude for the love and the grace that you've shown to us. Come and give us grace and courage and energy to fight sin, the motivational core of our lives. Would you speak to our hearts, even as we sing these songs now, of the great love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. And may uh, the knowledge of your love heal our hearts. May May it go all the way to the root and kill the roots of sin in our lives so that we might be a people that would bear fruit, that would glorify your name, that we might be people who would live whole, in obedience to you so that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point. Amen. Uh, hallelujah, indeed. Uh, just two things before I pronounce the benediction. The first is, uh, if you have kids in, child, in the kids' worship, uh, welcome to the first day of autumn. The air conditioners aren't working over there. And let's be honest, it's not autumn yet, right? Or do we even have that in Florida? I don't know. Point is, it's hot. So I'm sure the workers and your children would appreciate you kind of making your way over there as fast as you possibly can um, so we can get them out of that. And we apologize about that. We're going to get that fixed this week. So that the second thing is tonight really is a big deal for our church. Uh, whenever God works and raises up uh, leaders, we want to celebrate that. And I, so I just would encourage you uh, and appeal to you uh, in the vows that you've taken, as much as you're able to be here tonight, please come and, and be a part of that service with us. It really is a big deal and an important thing. So please come back tonight at 6 for that as well. Now, um, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then no matter how out of tune you may be when you sing, God receives your song as if the melody was perfect. No matter, I saw a couple of you say, amen, thank you, Jesus. That was funny. That was really funny. (laughs) I didn't mean for that. But anyway, If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, no matter how weak you might be and how big a limp you might carry into the areas of obedience in your life, the Father looks at you and is pleased because he disregarded his son. He now has nothing but regard for you. That's the promise of the gospel. So receive that promise. Ask him to drill it into the the center of your life because it's the very thing that can heal your heart and it'll produce obedience. And so receive the benediction then by faith uh, that God truly is uh, pleased with you. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. May he regard you. Uh, Amen. Go in his peace.